kind of a All right. inclement weather. So, so we are live. Comfort ye my people. Lesson two. And Joshua, take on. Thank you. Um, so this week's lesson. Uh, last week we touched this briefly, and we talked a little bit about Messiah and what's what's Messiah's purpose, goal. What's Messiah doing? Um, this week. In in the as we delved into the Haftarah and took a look at more deeply into some of the um, libretto from the Handel Messiah, uh, we focused instead on a lot of what Messiah Yeshua did do. So there is, if we have to say, if there's if there's one of the biggest um, uh, disagreements between us and some of our um, kosher eating friends, uh, that would be the uh, d disagreement over. Who Messiah is, and a lot of it boils down to what Messiah does, or or did what do, he must do. What he must do. Uh, Ramban has this whole little list of things. It's Ramban, Ramban. right? Ramban. Excuse me, Ramban. I get those confused sometimes. And who said what? I know who they are, but who said what? Ramban has his list of Messiah qualities. Check, check, check. He's got to do restore. You got to rebuild the temple. He's got to bring back the exiles, etc., uh, etc. Et so yeah. there's a list of things. Yeshua obviously doesn't do any of those, at least not, not in a physical sense, um, in his first coming. Um, so this is a disagreement. Uh, Orthodox Jews sometimes feel like, um, or they, they try to argue that, well, Messiah, Yeshua can't be Messiah. Or maybe Yeshua could be Messiah, but he wasn't, because he didn't do that stuff. Now, you know. It's funny if you press them on that and say, well, when Messiah comes, because we both agree Messiah will come, yes, when Messiah comes and he does all the things on Rambam's list and you agree that he is the Messiah and it turns out to be Yeshua is he Messiah? yes so he's not Messiah now well no so, but he would be yes so you find yourself in the unfortunate position right now of denying the Messiah if it turns out to be him they don't like that position Probably not. Who would? Uh, <laughs> who would? Judaism right, takes yeah. they have this view that, that Messiah is um, that Messiah is not settled. And I think that's that's another big difference between us and them. So what we want to do this week, in this week's portion, um, we're gonna talk more about Messiah, what he does, um, it more in line with some of Judaism's traditions, um, in the in coming weeks and Yeshua's second coming, in which he's gonna fulfill quite a few of these big, big checkboxes. But all of them, right? <laughs> all of them. Um, but this time, uh, is this the first coming was not, uh, it wasn't a dry run. I think that sometimes, um, once we get into Judaism, we might lose a little bit of sight of some of what Yeshua did the first time. And it wasn't, uh, it wasn't like Messiah came and, drat, the Jews weren't ready. I guess we'll have to come back again in 2,500 years, or however long it's been, 2,221. Um, so instead Yeshua came with a mission and he accomplished his mission and his mission even though it wasn't in the, uh, the Rambam uh, buckets uh, was prophesied and so we're going to look at some of those prophecies this week so um, uh, if someone would be so kind as to read for us uh, look at some of what we read this week Isaiah chapter 50 and let's go to verse 4 through 10. 
Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to stain with a word. Him who is weary, morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. <clears throat> Excuse me, through which verse? That's a 10. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not put, be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together with my adversary. Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. Moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. So, did you uh, catch anything there that kind of sounded like Yeshua's experience? The suffering. Right, but what specifics? What were some things that, that got mentioned? I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. Shame, that. spitting. I, yeah. I, I actually was surprised. Uh, you know, in Isaiah 53 is, is right, it's big, right? We, don't, we all know that one. I don't know why we all know that, but we all know. It's the easier one. Yeah, but I, I had no idea that 50 was in there, and I think I've always picked up Isaiah right around 52 and a half, 53. <laughs> but I was surprised. I really was. And I actually put in, in, in my notes, it says... It sounds the same. I would have thought the references were off by a few chapters. <laughs> but they weren't. Right. It, it's astonishing. Yeah. Um, and uh, so who's talking here? Is it Isaiah? Is it Messiah? Is it Israel? Yes. Yes? Okay. Yeah. I think that one of the things that it's really important when we think about um, Yeshua and, and the prophecies in Isaiah is... You know, a lot of our, again, our, 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 our Jewish friends will argue that, well, this is only talking about Israel. But, but even in some of the Jewish commentaries, they acknowledge it's a dual prophecy. Messiah gets folded in there, too. And the quintessential Israelite. The quintessential Israelite. Because we have to remember what is the suffering for. It's on behalf of the Amen. people of Israel. Amen. So it would only make sense for him to uh, represent Israel... And at the same time, to experience on Israel's behalf a suffering that Israel too is experiencing. I think that's something we have we have to emphasize here too, as well. Um, in in Isaiah, in the prophets, as we're reading these consolation chapters, one of the things that God's going to tell Israel has been telling Israel is that you pay double for your sins. Judaism has this idea, and there's biblical basis for it, that suffering atones for sin. If you think about it, the example that I was talking about at home this week was, it, it's like uh, we somehow get in our heads that, um, that, that, that uh, the only consequence, I guess, for sin is hell or something, some negative afterlife experience. And therefore, we need Yeshua to pay for that, and then, phew, good. Now we're okay. Everything's fine. Fireworks. And only the, only, uh, only the people who don't believe in God, well, they, they have bad things happen to them sporadically because of their sin, but, you know, as long as you don't have sex outside of marriage, you're going to be okay. That's basically the way that we Or run with scissors. Yeah, right. Okay, yes. But, I mean, it's amazing. Like, basically, this is the kind of mentality we take. And 
Judaism's approach is to say, no, 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 sin, sin comes with it a certain, certain penalty, certain consequences, and as we suffer, we are, in, a, in effect, um, satisfying those consequences in small pieces, in small bits. And, and so I was thinking of it almost kind of like it's like a judge with a with sentence. You know, God is not, um, he's not vindictive. He's not, he's not looking at us going, well, you blew it, so yeah, I can, I, I never forgive that. Toast. Instead, it's more like there's a, there's a penalty for the crime. Once you pay the penalty, it's like it never happened. It's kind of like you're forgiven, in a sense. Like you paid your debt. You paid your debt. So there is that component of this as well. So our suffering is also redemptive to some degree. It's not what we really need. It's not a full manifestation of that atonement. But it, um, there is a benefit to it. You're talking about Rambam. And part of the... Judaism looks at Christianity explanation of the prophetic parts of the New Testament to say, well you're being unfair because you're after the fact saying see. So you took the so you have the solution and all you have to do is go back and find stuff that fits and said that's not fair. Well actually the very same thing and that's the problem with Rambam is the very same thing is being applied by Judaism. They basically say, okay, here's what the Christians are saying that the Messiah and we don't think he is, so <laughs> we need to find we need to define what Messiah will do. See, he didn't do any of that. Right. It's like, well, that's not fair either. <laughs> so the problem is everybody has too much knowledge hmm. of of what occurred and nobody's willing to actually look pat rush and say no one. We are all subject to not be willing being willing to look past our preconceived or or taught notions, we have to be willing to say, okay, well, it, it, is it conceivable that this is or is not speaking of? Right. And and you know, of course, then the atheist he says you can take anything. Because the Bible has so many so many words, you can you can make it say anything, which is nonsense too. But the point here is that this passage actually meets a definition for Messiah, regardless of who's reading it, if they will not. Try and put it in a context of Christian versus Judaism. And I, I one of the things I, I <laughs> one time it was like filling messianic prophecies should in some ways be somewhat easy. A lot of them are are, are, are specific things, but they're they're kind of generic events. You know, anybody can have this happen to them. Somebody and, rode uh, on a donkey. Okay, there you go. Well, that was the one I was. <laughs> Everybody rides on a donkey. I, I was talking to somebody one time, okay. and it's like uh, riding on a donkey into Jerusalem is pretty easy, but nobody did it. <laughs> like, like that's not that hard. But it's amazingly enough, only one guy did that one, at least with enough fanfare that people didn't notice. Exactly. So I think everybody ran a donkey, but only one person had pictures. Right, right. <laughs> uh, or at least the uh, you know flannel graph artists, right? There. That's right. Um, but it's just amazing to me that, that like prophecies were, were were that were fulfilled, and and we are anachronistic because we look at it from the future. Yeshua is not. I think one of the passages we read this week, or if not this week, it was last week. Yeshua specifically calls out and says, why did the prophet say that Messiah must suffer? Whoa! Wait, prophets say what? Like, he recognized that before his own suffering, that that was what was going to happen. And he prophesied that it would happen. And it did. So, while the rest of us, Rambam included, have the benefit of hindsight, he did not. He recognized, and his disciples may have been a little surprised by some of the things in the, prophet, in the prophets, 
But Yeshua doesn't doesn't say that as though I've got a deep seat for you. So all those I've got a handful of random passages I'm going to fulfill. I'm just going to magically get the Romans mad at me enough they're going to kill me and it's going to look like this. I mean, instead he's he's acting almost as though this is like yeah. Why did the prophets say Messiah suffer? And the, you know the disciples are like, uh, well I don't, I don't know. But doesn't that allow you have to come first? Yeah. Yes, and, and they had a concept of two different messiahs, even then. Right. But then I was standing, I mean, uh, Judaism really has a, a, a difficult time looking at us and, and calling the spade black because Christianity learned which passages were <laughs> messianic because the sages of Israel had already said that they were messianic passages. You know, I remember Jonathan used to say that he loved it when the, the Jews would pick on a particular verse because he knew they were gonna do it because it was a messianic verse. What he, what he got a kick out of though was when they were making fun of a verse and it wasn't messianic and you know, he, could, he could put them in. Anyway, um, I think uh, Rick is the one who first uh, actually you know, taught a formal class here and, uh, and went through the concept of two different kinds of salvation. And it's not something you normally hear in the church, because the church is not a nation. Hmm. The concept of an individual salvation and a national salvation right. is right. almost untaught right. in, in the church today. And, and that's, a, that's a concept that the passage you're alluding to today, this, uh, as we start, is, is something that, that we need to remember. Paul made it clear, as did the prophets, all Israel will be saved. Now, is that all Israel in all of time? Or is it all Israel on the planet at the time when Messiah comes? You can argue that as long as you want. It doesn't matter. And the sages do. Right. The bottom line is, there is a national salvation. When, uh, uh, in Isaiah 11, verse 12, um, when Messiah comes, he will gather Israel and Judah and bring them to Jerusalem, and he will reign over them. He will gather his own right. people. So, there it is. Um, I think one thing before you move on to your, to your next uh, passage, is uh, out of Luke 9. Uh, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And if you look in other passages, you'll see that he, his face was set like flint just what we just towards read. Jerusalem which is what we just read. So that you've got at least three things in there that he fulfilled. How do you face it like Flint? What, what does that mean? Yeah. Zippo lighter. You look like a Zippo lighter. Yeah. But the, uh, go ahead. Well, I'm just going to go down a rabbit trail if I go that direction. So I could continue. Yeah. Um, one of the things we were talking about earlier about atonement, right? So suffering atones for sin. Um, obviously, the suffering of the righteous is especially effective in that regard because they don't deserve and the Jews believe oh, this for sure we read this multiple places one of the components, now this is really cool <clears throat> one Jewish tradition that I read recently, and unfortunately I cannot recall exactly where I read it, I think it was in the Rashi commentary for the Torah portions, but 
I couldn't find it today. Um, it was uh, the idea that the temples were destroyed as a um, almost like a uh, collection of debt on the people of Israel's sin. So that instead of the people of Israel being wiped out as they were worthy of in their because of their sin, God destroyed the temples instead. And what's remarkable about that, I mean, it makes some logical sense. In a sense, it's like something had to pay. So God essentially paid for himself. Um, what's remarkable about that particular image is um, <clears throat> something Yeshua said in John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, verse 18, he says, the, the Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Yeshua answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he raised, was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Yeshua had spoken. So Yeshua makes this connection between the destruction of the temple and, uh, and himself, which in light of this you know, additional midrash or teaching idea that the destruction of the temple is an atoning effect on the people of Israel, I thought that was really cool. So it's kind of like Yeshua's recognizing that his own um, death and, and, and resurrection ultimately <clears throat> is similar to the destruction of the temple, um, which it, and it continues along that same theme, God essentially extracting a penalty from his, his own in order to pay for the people. Um, I've got several references to that from in Moed Katan 28a. Um, talks about Miriam's death being juxtaposed to the passage regarding the red heifer. I think you, you right. might have brought that one out. Mm -hmm. um, Leviticus Rabbah 2012, as the day of atonement affects atonement, so the death of the righteous brings atonement. And they go to, they actually mention 2 Samuel uh, 21 14, which you did, with Saul's death and Jonathan's death right. and being treated for the land. Um, did you go, did all get, did you all really follow the logic there? Oh, yeah. That basically in Judaism, <clears throat> if they're talking about the sky being blue, and then they transition to the ocean being blue. They're like, see, there's a connection there. Right. Like that's they they have two passages juxtaposed against each other. They comment on one another. It's, so they're and saying the scripture does it. It's, it's right. important. Right. So they're saying just because so just because the, the story of the red heifer or the teaching of the red heifer is next to the story Miriam's of death. Miriam's death, that the atoning element of the red heifer is similar to the atoning effect of Miriam's death. Exactly. So there's the death of the righteous is has an atonement effect. What's amazing is that they um, is I thought the Saul passage was especially cool because for that one there's a there's a midrash from uh, I think it's particularly Israel if I recall correctly um, where basically they don't know what what's wrong. You know, there's a famine or something negative experience for the people of Israel and they try to figure out the problem is and they do reinvestigation and basically it comes down to the fact they didn't properly bury Saul. Saul's buried outside the land of Israel. Saul, by the way, in case you've forgotten this, is a Mashiach. He's an anointed one, which is what that word means in Hebrew. David specifically is careful of him not to kill him when he has multiple opportunities because he's the anointed one of God. So this Mashiach character uh, is, is, uh, is reburied in the land of Israel. And then the Kedil is your commentary says at that point it says that God heard the land, sent rain, and, and, and provided for them again. So it brought atonement upon the land to bury the righteous. The 
My favorite two in that vein are Barachot 62b, Adel Talmud. Rabbi Elazar said, The Holy One, blessed is he, said to the angel of death, Take from me a great one, a rob, among them, through whose death many sins can be expiated. That's cool. But my favorite is Exodus Rabbah 35.4. Moses sees into the future and knows Israel will have neither tabernacle nor temple. Then what? The divine reply was, I will take one of their righteous men and retain him as a pledge on their behalf in order that I pardon all their sins. Right. So what are we talking about right the, now? We're, the atonement of the righteous not being part of Judaism? Well, yeah, but we're reading, we're reading the consolation of Israel. Well, how is the consolation of Israel really possible? They did a lot of stuff wrong, and Judaism acknowledges that ultimately Israel's sins exceed, particularly as they continue to sin, exceed the penalty they've suffered. It's not, it's not enough for them to have just been exiled for 2,000 years. It's like, okay, well, that's good enough. We can wipe the slate clean and start over. Judaism comes up with additional things, like the destruction of the temple or some of the other passages that you just quoted to say, we need something more in order to truly merit that, that final redemption. Um, Yeshua's death is that something more. It fills that gap. And um, I was going on with the, the burial of the righteous because Yeshua has a very unusual account in his his death experience. Um, it has to do with the burial of the righteous. Um, there's this really cool guy whose name is Joseph uh, from Arimathea. Um, every time I say that, I can't help but think about Monty Python saying, it's written in Aramaic, um, which is obviously a, a terrible misquote of that. Um, Arimathea not being Aramaic. The point being that, um, the point <laughs> of getting it. I know, right? I had to do that. I mean, I'm in a group of men, and I got to mention that. I know, right? Okay. Um, <laughs> for those of you who have never seen this film, I cannot recommend it at all. But um, maybe you, you, can, you, you can YouTube that one particular scene. Um, anyway, the point is that uh, Joseph of Arimathea, a very wealthy man, gives up his own tomb to bury Yeshua. Nicodemus Nachdemon, also extremely wealthy, um, comes and buries him. Um, another cool guy named Joseph has made up repeatedly in this room that uh, there is um, that both Joseph of Arimathea and Nachdemon would then have had to miss the Passover because they would be unclean. And as we read about in the book of Numbers, there's a second Passover for the men who, who have an issue with burying, uh, with burying someone, and they can they can wait until they're clean for the second Passover. It's cool that the the, the the Tanakh actually says they were made unclean because they were burying their friend. You know what's amazing about that particular? There's a, there's multiple traditions about who that friend is. I believe one of them, if I recall correctly. Is that it's the guy picking up sticks oh. on the sh- on the Sabbath? That got stoned. They got stoned. What's fascinating I about was that? Stoned to death. And he didn't get... Yeah, he got stoned <laughs> to death. What's fascinating about that is um, the guy that got stoned to death. There's another tradition that says that's Zelefcha, if I recall correctly. And the reason why they say that is there's a there's a an interesting twist sometimes with bad characters in the, in the time. Some of the sages will like to try to find an explanation for why they did something that was so obviously wrong. So one of the twists is that this guy was actually a really good dude. And he was concerned that Israel, if I, if I can't remember the exact, exact reason, but it was something like, you know, Israel wasn't taking the mitzvot seriously enough. He was afraid that they were going to abandon the mitzvot when they went to the land of Israel, something like that. So in an effort to 
essentially wake everybody up and kind of shock them into position. He intentionally violated Shabbat, knowing that it would require a death sentence. He became the first guy and only guy. And only guy. So yeah, could stab it. And they didn't do it again. Um, and it's weird. It, it, it's not, I'm not saying that that's um, a good idea. My point, though, is to say that it's, it's, again, a guy who's normally righteous, who's trying to suffer on behalf of the people. Um, and this reminds me, there's a Midrash as well in the book of Jonah that teaches that Jonah, when he flees God, it's not because he uh, doesn't want to go to Nineveh. It's because he knows that if he goes to Nineveh, they will repent, God will save them, the people, the yeah, there would potential of being accused of being a false, false prophet, prophet that would be destroyed, right. uh, which would defame God's name. But then also that the people of Assyria will come and wipe out Israel as they're deserving. So Jonah right. runs away, and he was right. Jonah, he was right. Jonah runs away on purpose to incite God against himself in an effort to be taken out of the picture, which is probably why he was so like chill with being thrown overboard. He didn't expect to survive. That was part of the plan, you know? So it's amazing, again, I'm not saying, you know, Yeshua's a different story. He dies for something he did not do. And he did not sin. My point, though, is to say that Judaism has multiple stories in it of a good man suffering, dying a penalty, paying a penalty, death even, on, uh, in an effort to bring forgiveness, atonement, Redemption, righteousness, something to the people of Israel as a nation, and I and I just I can't emphasize that point enough because you know we um, this isn't foreign. Um, speaking of the passage that we were talking about earlier, I feel like we should read Isaiah fifty three because it's just so poignant, um, in and and remarkable in its capacity for for prophecy on Yeshua. Uh, so someone could read the whole chapter fifty three one through twelve. It's not too long. Good. <clears throat> Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the offer of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, and his sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he, had, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, we have turned, every one, to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken the transition of my people. That was a question I didn't read, right? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no decent, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see him. He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, 
make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Hallelujah. It's an amazing passage. I mean, realistically, uh, the death of Yeshua was a pretty graphic and dramatic um, historical event, and given uh, the volume of tradition, myth even around his death, I think it's pretty definitive that it did happen something close. You know, we believe it happened exactly in the scripture, but even you know, the typical historian have to agree at least it did happen. Um, what's remarkable about that <coughs> is that it matches up so well with this passage. I mean, even even more amazing to me is that the, the disciples, when they when the, the apostles who wrote down the gospels, they didn't call out this passage hardly at all. They didn't need to. Like you'd think about it, if they were trying to fit facts or fudge facts to fit prophecies, this is this is a slam dunk one, right? You know, so talk about he'd be buried with the rich in his death. We should probably you know quote that in the passage about Joseph of Arimathea. They don't, because just what happened. The, uh, the alignment of Yeshua's death and resurrection with this passage is spectacular. Really is amazing. How about a prophecy being told? Yes, sir. Verse 10. He will see his offspring and prolong his days. How is Yeshua fit uh, that mold? He didn't have offspring. Well, I think first off, um, the, uh, I, my, the his there is, is in Alex, so... Um, he will see offspring may or may not necessarily be like biological offspring of its own. It could be someone else's. But more importantly, the whole concept, and literally, literally just this week, reading through the parasha, um, when it talks about the idea of, uh, of you as God's children, um, the commentary goes on to say that basically there's this principle that like every disciple has children. In fact, the Shema, the Shema, it was last week's parasha, teaching the Shema to your children, the, the traditional Jewish interpretation of that passage is actually teach it to your disciples. Yeah, it's does the same thing. Yeah. So um, offspring is a term that is regularly used as, um, as someone who comes after you, not necessarily someone that issues from your body. Um, so I think there's definitely a way that, that they can match that in. So do you think God was not saying that Abraham's offspring would be like the stars in the heavens? No, no, no. I it's actually the same way. So, <laughs> but, it's raw, but context. Yeah, I think context. I'm here here, you I can think. be. That's fine. But I think this thing about prophecy, though, is prophecy tends to be um, double, double-edged, Peaks. and it has, and its interpretations can be, can, can be varied. We already, as I said earlier, this passage is also talking about Israel. That's right, yeah. So, and that's what most rabbinical, you know, Jews sure. will argue. Oh, here is this discrepancy in your theory. I've had that argument. And but, I responded in like manner, as you just responded, because I believe prophecy is multi-layered. Oh yeah, and Judaism definitely does. I mean, that's the whole idea behind most of these Messianic prophecies. If you go and read Rashi or any of the other sages and their commentaries and you find a Messianic passage, I will almost guarantee you that probably three quarters of them, you'd be going, if you didn't, if you didn't have the, the apostolic scriptures, you'd be scratching your head going, how would they know that was Messiah? Because, well, first off, I think God, God revealed it, but more importantly, I think that the point is that, that the scriptures have layers. This is built into Judaism, so there's definitely layers when it comes to prophecy. And I've got you guys. I think there's another way to look at the seed. 
deal here that we, we normally wouldn't think of. Um, that's a major promise to David. Mm -hmm. That he would see his seed would continue, right? He would do have a kingdom and so on. Um, but the master used this and turned it on its head. Remember, he, he, he talks about the psalm and he says, So why does David say, call his son, son Lord? Right. So he's doing this. So if Messiah Yeshua will see his offspring, He's going to see King David on the throne. Huh. I can see. I, can, I, can see I, mean? Yeah. I mean, the very next verse is he will prolong his days, yeah. which inherently contrasts with the rest of the passage talk about his death. Yeah. So yeah. it's very clear that there is, um, that you kind of have to read between the lines here to some degree. That obviously I think is talking about resurrection. Again, it goes back to Yeshua. Um, same topic? Not Yes. Okay. Not to imply that he ever had offspring, but... There's no problem, even if he did. I mean, we're not Catholics. <laughs> <laughs> right. I guess that's true. Um, I got a nervous twitch there. It's, it's like... <laughs> well, I, I know it's true. true. You, you think it's true? I know it's true. We're not oh, yes, yeah, like, that was the whole, like, I mean, the whole notion of, of Dan Brown. And, yes, like, ooh, we're going to really slam Catholicism now. We'll have a whole, you know, people will think it's even real. They'll read this novel and, oh, no, he had children. Therefore... He's not Messiah? That's ridiculous. That's right. just absolutely ridiculous. I mean, it's like we don't know that he won't in the future. I mean, it's like hard to comprehend, but there's nothing that requires him not to have children. My goodness. Yeah, I think it's just people get people get squeamish because of his divinity. But um, He's a man. True. Amen. Um, but I, I, I mean, I, I don't think that he did. I think I like the alignment with, uh, with Moshe. Moshe <laughs> has the... Uh... But not because of Catholicism. Right. It's because it wasn't recorded. Right, right. There was no reason. Was right. The yeah. disciples wouldn't go, oh, let's cover this up. Which is <laughs> like, why? Right, right, right. What are we going to do with this right. life? In fact, the irony, yeah, the yeah, irony about, about, the, about the need for a giant cover-up is that Judaism be scratching their head going, and the problem with having kids is... Exactly. Like, I mean, Billy, you really are the son of God. <laughs> oh dear! Oh dear! Number two. That, that just <laughs> right. that was just said. I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to throw it. It's just like yes, it's, it's always funny <laughs> that people make a big deal about it. It's, it's like it's not a big deal. It, right. 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 right, right, right. I hear. It I doesn't prove you. anything either way. Right. Wait, I was. Yeah, it's interesting too to know the end of the story and be thinking in when you read through Isaiah 53 to be thinking about a potential king, because there. I mean, mm -hmm. this is right. like one of the most unbelievable demonstrations of a king or leadership that you could ever read. Like somebody who has humbled themselves to the point of death on behalf of the people he's about to rule. Like it is, mm -hmm. just from that perspective, it is like heartbreaking, but also in like a good way where you're just like, of course I want to serve this guy. Like right. He did all of this on an individual level as well as a national level. Right. And right. it's, it really, it's it's astonishing to, to think about it from that perspective is like, Wow, this is the same guy. And he's going to come back and rule. not be ashamed that he is our king. Exactly. He's spectacular. Yeah. Right. We, you know, our our culture through history, culture has 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 been enthralled with a leader who is a common man, and it's it's like, I mean, really think about all the all the you know, uh, Henry at Agincourt, you know, the day the day before Agincourt, he walks amongst the people disguised as a regular soldier. 
You know, and the people love it. I mean, the story's wonderful. Oh, isn't this, look at how wonderful Henry is because he was like us. You know, it's the same idea. Yeah, right. Um, and this, uh, and, but going back to what you were talking about earlier, this, this passage, it lines up so well with what we see. And really we're talking about being turned my back to the smiters. Um, you gave a lesson 15 years ago. Oh my goodness. In my dad's Sunday school class, when we were actually in Sunday school, that's how long ago that was, um, about the, the medical oh, yeah. impact of the crucifixion, yeah. um, including the, the beating of the back with the cat of nine tails, uh, the, um, yeah, the ripping chunks of flesh out kind of thing, just unbelievable, horrific. Yes. Heart melts like wax. I mean, like, and literally, um, yeah, uh, and then the and suffocation, and then is, dying by suffocation, and the, and the, and the, the heart literally bursting open. It's, it's an unbelievably it's, it's awful, impossible to imagine kind of way of dying. And of course, the people that perfected this were the Romans. Um, it's a side point to point that out. Not Italians, Romans. The, right. the, Jews, <laughs> the Jews did not kill Yeshua. That's right. The Romans did. Jews may have asked the Romans to do it for them to some degree, well, some of the Jews, some, some bad Jews. But the Jews didn't do it. And I think it's very important to point that out. You know, all the, the I feel like kind of bizarre to me, quite frankly, that there are all Christ these anti-Semitic. Hello, yeah, it's did like, you read the book? I know they they should be marching into the they should be marching up to you know the Colosseum and chanting that. But anyway, um, I looked up this week for the first time. I had never looked this up and gotten a, a good passage, and I thought this was quite fascinating to learn more about Mashiach ben Yosef. So in Jewish tradition, there are two messiahs. In generically speaking, so what I'm about to tell you does not leave this room. That's not true. It's not true. Messiah ben Joseph, Messiah ben Yosef, is a teaching in Judaism that is hotly debated. There's not a lot of agreement. In fact, the end of the Chabad.org call article on it it basically concludes with saying, "We really don't know." Consult your rabbi. He's probably going to talk about it. Right. But don't, in fact, it, we probably shouldn't even talk about this much. But you know, we had to, so we moved on. But I mean, like, it's very, 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 uh, in fact, there's also a lot of teaching because of what we talked about earlier about the redemption coming through suffering. There's even a teaching that says, well, if Israel's worthy, Messiah ben Yosef basically is, is, is irrelevant because he's only there to kind of like kickstart sort of the, the suffering component of the end of days to bring, to bring Israel to its proper place for Messiah, for Messiah ben David. So Messiah ben Yosef is the suffering Messiah. Just remarkable. Um, Messiah ben David, David is the ruling Messiah. What's interesting, though, about some traditions about Messiah ben Yosef, I found quite fascinating. So, number one, um, that he he is considered to be a forerunner of Messiah ben David. His primary purpose is to prepare the people of Israel for the true Mashiach. He is a ruler. He is a king, political figure. He's also referred to as the Messiah of war because he, uh, he, will, he will fight in conflict. Um, his primary enemy is Esau. Uh, uh, Esau, in fact, they, uh, they pull in multiple passages um, when they talk about uh, the... Uh, they also refer to Messiah ben Yosef sometimes referencing the actual Yosef as uh, Messiah ben Ephraim, saying he's coming from this, that literal genealogical line. Um, I get a kick out of the fact that our Messiah Yeshua actually was also the son of Joseph, which I think is really funny. Didn't have to come from Ephraim, but he, you know, he stacks that box. 
Um, but anyway, but he so was they, in that But he had what? what? Oh well, yeah, they, after that region. Um, what's interesting though is uh, so they, he talks about there's all these passages about the Seven Yosef, but I gotta read through. I'm gonna just read you Chabad.org's description of some of his his his, his the, the expectation or beliefs about him. Because I, I, I want to make it so clear that I'm not making this up. Talking about the war between Messiah ben Yosef and, es, and, and Esau, or Edom, or Rome, Rome. in some traditions, right. the immediate results of this war will be disastrous. Mashiach ben Yosef will be killed. This is described in the prophecy of Zechariah, who says of this tragedy that, quote, they shall mourn him as one mourns for an only child, Zechariah 12.10. His death will be followed by a period of great calamities. These new tribulations will be the final test for Israel. And shortly thereafter, Mashiach ben David shall come, avenge his death, resurrect him, and inaugurate the messianic era of everlasting peace and bliss. Bam! Whoa! I mean, it's different. But there's a lot in common with what we just read in Isaiah 53, talking about Yeshua, and what you guys read this week in Matthew... And in, um, and in and in excerpts from the libretto about what actually happened to Yeshua. And as though it couldn't be a, a, a bigger clincher, who kills him? Rome, Esau. Esau is the one who kills Mashiach ben Yosef. Um, and that death ultimately is atoning for us. It is redemptive. And like I was saying, they, there's teaching saying, hey, you know what? If Israel's worthy, Messiah ben Yosef won't die. Back. They say when you pray in the Shemoni Ezra, one of the prayers you pray in there is to pray for the establishment of the throne of David. Well, one of the titles of Mashiach ben Yosef is the throne of David. So when you pray for that prayer to be established, you're, you're, you're symbolically asking that God would not kill Messiah ben Yosef. So the point that I'm trying to get at is they recognize that Messiah ben Yosef's death is a consequence of Israel's sin. So in looking at this week's discussion, talking about our Yeshua, Messiah, the Messiah, really, Yeshua, his death and resurrection and his impact for the people of Israel to bring atonement, as we've been saying throughout this whole class, not foreign to Judaism at all. In fact, they even have traditions about Messiah that line up with a lot of what we, we, we mm -hmm. talk about. Um, and I just thought that was just really, really cool, but also very encouraging to see, uh, I mean, really, you start to kind of realize how, how small the differences become when we stop long enough to really talk and listen to each other. True. It is sad that there isn't a lot of talk about it. You know, like, mm -hmm. I think, like, the biggest difference probably is, you know, like, the, the more you dig, I think the more you find those, but it's usually in the literature. It's not usually in teachings from actual rabbis, like, today. Oh, right. And that's that's always, a, I think, to Mr. Prague always points this out, it's like, but they, they kind of have to be that way. It's like, everything's got to be secretive. They can't, if they touch too close to that, then there could be confusion, and they're, they're always trying to just avoid the association, mm -hmm. but yet they can't avoid it when you actually dive into the literature. But then, you, but then you hear of some of these guys behind the scenes, right? That'll say stuff like, "Those who know don't say; those who say don't really know." Well, what was the guy? And you, you got some rabbi, yeah. Perlmutter, right? Be out in the yeah. desert, and he's absolutely convinced from the scriptures. And then you got another guy on YouTube. Well, 
convinced me. That was over at uh, Greg's house. We could barely understand it, right? These guys are Orthodox Jews who believe that Yeshua is the, is the Mashiach. You've got an entire sect of Judaism living in Israel today that were on, uh, what's Arab Sheva? Is that the, what's the news organization? It is Arab Sheva. I, I watched an Arab Sheva news broadcast where they were being spit on by other Orthodox Jews because they believed that in Yeshua. What's They're there. And what's remarkable about Rabbi Perlmutter is he didn't come to realize Messiah was Yeshua based on reading the Tanakh in, in context. It was based on reading the Sipur, right. which is which is draw from the, from the Tanakh. The point is that um, he was using the prayer book to, to make the conclusions about Yeshua. Yeah. So, so the sages knew or didn't talk about it, but it's in there. It's in there. And well, I think I think what it really boils down to, and this, I think this is again as an encouragement for us, despite the disagreement, despite the the. The, the spiritual warfare really between Christianity and Judaism um, both sides kind of came to pretty much the same conclusions um, without talking to each other really in fact even trying to avoid talking to each other D double blind test it's it's right. really quite yeah. it's really quite remarkable and I and not to say that we need that reassurance and again given there are some differences I want to be careful to say that that's not what we base our faith on Nonetheless, I think it, it just re-emphasizes and reinforces the idea that this is God's plan. This is how God expects his word to be interpreted. Because people who, quite frankly, try very hard not to sound like each other sound a oh, lot alike. That's right. And the double blind assumes that we can all, all arrive at the same conclusion as long as we don't talk to each other. But this is actually two guys' sides that are actually wanting to disprove each other. <laughs> right. I mean, that, was, that was your point earlier, that Rambam is basically, I mean, no, I'm not saying he's doing it on this is the only reason, but he has the ability to say, well, Christianity says X, Y, and Z about Messiah, so we're only going to say A, B, and C and say X, Y, and Z definitely are not Messiah, and oh, therefore how Just like his, prove it. his, his third, uh, his third uh, principle of Judaism is that God has no form or body, but it doesn't say that in Scripture. In fact, the you only, can say that, but it's only found in the apostolic scriptures that it says that. I was going to say, the only place it does say that God is invisible is Paul, which is really ironic. Um, but that's my point, though, is to say that like, we're oftentimes where it seems that there's irreconcilable differences. In fact, the overlap is so dramatic that the, the differences almost kind of become like, well... Nuances. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what Gregory's saying. We just don't... We don't talk about it. Yeah. And the only times that we do talk about it are, are those on the other side of the fence that are endeared to us the most. Right. I mean, I, I can think of a rabbi or two that, yeah. you know, you talk about it, there's no angst to say, oh, yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, that makes sense. Wow. Oh, well, you mean the Holy One of Israel did not violate a virgin of Israel? That's good that... Yeah, okay, so that's better than what I thought when I walked in here. Yeah, right. You know, you're like, you thought what? <laughs> well, We're not that, Catholics. No, right. yeah. I, yeah. I, I do think that... We're pagans. That, uh, <laughs> one, of the, one of the immense benefits of this class and studying with you men has been to learn, for me, better, at least a little bit better, how to see the apostolic scriptures from a Jewish perspective so that we don't sound that way and can't be confused when we are describing our faith. Right. You know, that we that the way that we speak of our Messiah 
and the way that we get excited about the work that he's already completed and the work that he will complete, it sounds so eerily similar to what they believe that it they hopefully can't be they can't exactly you know and that that is kind of the the goal, um, and not to get too caught up in. But surely that's how Paul sounded, right? And you know what's remarkable is one of these rabbi guys who over multiple conversations has slowly gotten whittled down from, you know, well, you can't believe this to the point now where it's like, Messiah, that's fine, whatever. It may be true, maybe not. The biggest difference between Christians and Jews is definitely the concept of original sin. Like, oh, wait, what? I'm sorry. That's the biggest difference? Okay. Uh, we can work on we that. We can go with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll take that. I'll take original sin for 200. Um, <laughs> that guy, ironically enough, when he, uh, he had an opportunity to speak in this room, sounded a lot like Paul. Yeah, he did. Uh, when you start to think about, um, so when you start to think about where we're going and where, um, hopefully, Yeshua, um, when Yeshua's returning soon... That's uh, the next class. Let's not, let's right. not take away the thunder. That that would be, um, that we will see these things and, and, and there's going to be light bulbs going off in all directions. I and mean, I think we're going to be surprised by some stuff, too. Absolutely. We don't know the whole story. Well, I, to that point, real quick, I mean, Gregor was, uh, was, was talking about the first coming and, um, and how this, this king went so far above and beyond mm -hmm. the love of his subjects and the love of his brothers and so forth. And, and it's just a remarkable story, and you just want to love this guy. I mean, it's, it's, it's over the top. I think in the same vein, he will rule over the top. He will be such an amazing ruler that we will be surprised. I, quite frankly, think we'll be also surprised that he meets out punishment. Right. I think I mean, he is going to rule with a rod of iron, and I don't know of any ruler so far that's ruled with a rod of iron that had anybody to talk about it when he was done. <laughs> yeah, so. it's a. Uh, I think that that's something, I, and I, I, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I think as you read through Isaiah 53 as we did earlier, it's so easy sometimes to imagine this. You know, we'll talk about he's not comely in appearance, so he's this kind of ugly, squatty, maybe a little fat, you know, and, and fat really, Jesus. really, 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 really wimpy guy who just kind of like... Forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do. <laughs> Actually, I saw a TV, saw a TV movie one time that's exactly the way he was portrayed, and I remember thinking, it's like, well, yeah, why not? It could be. Maybe. I'm, my point, though, is to <laughs> say... To look at it. My yeah, point, though, is not to say his physical appearance. My point was to focus on the fact that I think that people sometimes think of him as so meek and mild, meek and mild yeah. that he basically just got run over. And it's like, well, of course that... I mean, you know... It's inner strength. Like, it's almost like yeah, everybody else strength. around him where it's like, yeah, I knew he was going to die. I mean, I could see it coming. Yeah. And it's like, no. We're talking about the guy who flipped tables in the temple. We're talking about the guy who walked on water. We're talking about the, uh, the guy who is and who recognized himself as being the king of Israel. He didn't call himself the son of man as a diminutive title. That title isn't pulling from Daniel, which is referencing the... Uh, the one who's presented to the ancient of days. The one who basically gets the keys to the kingdom from God himself. So his, the title that he refers to himself throughout the scripture and throughout the gospels and the way that he talks about himself... He fully recognizes who he is. In fact, that's what he says in John. I know where I came from. I know where I'm going. 
So therefore, all the stuff that's about to happen, I can deal with that. You know, we watch these movies where... I have a paraphrase here. Where, where you got a guy who just can grab stuff in the room and use it as a weapon. You know? I mean, total survivalist, right? That's what the master did when he walked into the temple. He flipped over the tables. He, he grabs a couple of pieces of rope, and he quickly makes this whip, and he's, he's kicking butt. The, the, going through the apostolic scriptures, like there were so many things that stood out to me that that further solidified like how much of a boss he was. Like, I mean, literally, <laughs> in the story, like there's literally like demons like begging him, to, please don't. Can we like, go to the pigs? Like literally, demons. Like everybody is running away from these guys, and he is just like so intense in so many ways, you know. And there was even uh, there, first of design just released an interesting uh, kind of parallel between a sort of a legend of Satan tempting Abraham and Isaac on their way to the Akedah mm -hmm. and his, his really strong response to Peter when he's kind of just trying to dissuade him. Yeah, he says, like, really clearly, like, get behind me, uh, Satan. And anyway, so, but even that, like, just statements like that, would you just read such confidence throughout the apostolic scriptures when you're looking at it that way, yeah. you know? And, and that's, that's why I was saying, like, we, when we know the end, right? When we know that this is the king we're reading about, then it's like, now it's so much easier to see that part of him in even the suffering, that it's not him just being a pushover. Oh, it's literally him looking them in the eye, being like, bring it on. Yeah. Like, you can't, you, you can't break me. <laughs> so, but it, was, but it was, and yet even greater than that, because, you know, William Wallace and others, they, they were strong through defiance. What's remarkable about Yeshua's death is he's, his power and strength through acceptance. Yeshua dies on purpose. Mm -hmm. He predicts his own death. He does it uh, with intention. It's not an accident. It's not a consequence of him being a rebel. It's something he wanted to happen because of us. And I think that's what I was trying to get at. Is like, if you think about who he is, the power that he carried with him, his death on our behalf should become even more overwhelming to us. Because it's not somebody who just died as a, as a matter of course. It's somebody who chose very deliberately to die for you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and me. Mm -hmm. That is amazing. He even, he even alludes to that himself. He says, you know, you're a king only because my father let you be a king. Right. Yeah. And, and I could call down, what was it, 10 legions of angels or something like that, and, and you know, we, we just kick butt right now. I'm not going to Okay, what do you got? Right. And, uh, and, then, and then, of course, as we, as we read, which I thought it was interesting, we had you guys look at some passages of looking ahead to Yeshua's second coming and what he's going to do. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but three of the four cross-references we threw in there were all from apostolic scriptures. Um, the Apostolic Scriptures, they, they're not shying away from it. In fact, it's really kind of, I think it's kind of cool, because you think, you know, so we have all these, this look backwards. The, 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 the apostles have the advantage of being able to say, well, I saw X, Y, and Z happen. Let's go find some passages in the Tanakh that line up with that, connect the dots, and aha, see, we proved it. Um, what's remarkable is that they don't stop there. Like, that would be like, I guess it's kind of a defeatist mentality if your Messiah just dies and resurrects and we don't really know what he's accomplished. But what's remarkable is that and I think this is contrasting, actually, to Catholicism we were talking about earlier. Catholicism's end of days, I'm not a Catholic, Catholic so I don't know the full ramification at all, but I don't get the impression there's a whole lot of uh, 
emphasis on Messiah's reign. I kind of get it. There's a lot of pictures of Messiah on the throne with you know, the halo type deal, but it's it's almost kind of a, again, it's, Christianity in general tends to drive for this, you know, we all go to heaven kind of deal. And the whole point was simply get us forgiven so that we can spend the rest of our life on golden streets in our own little mansion and, you know, hang out with all of our pets that died before us or whatever it might be. Um, but in but but it's the apostles' vision and, and Judaism's vision is this returning, reigning Messiah. He's going to come back to earth. He's going to conquer. He's going to rule. He's going to save Israel from their sins. He's going to fulfill these things in a in a complete a complete level, physically as well as a spiritual fulfillment. But they're but they're not ambig uh, they're not ambiguous in their description of these things. As much as in fact, before. maybe even more so than the prophetic uh, passages we've been reading from from the Tanakh. I mean, there's like there's not really two ways to read some of these. I mean, it's like it's pretty obvious, and not only that, line up with each other. So even the ones that were hanging out later, like John, you know, writing things that that uh, Peter wrote forty years earlier, you know, but they weren't like writing them together. Right, right. And they're specific. Right. You know, Peter, you know, John could have said, you know, Peter was a little bit, you know, too much this way, so you know, he's too Arminian. So Let me balance sure that. Calvinist thread is... <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and Yeshua himself prophesies of his, of his future um, coming and some of the things that will happen then. And I think that's just really... And that's the next class. Right, it is. But I think it's just, I think it's just, it's so, it's so gutsy it's so it's so um it's so self-convinced that it's true it's not because like i said the easy way out is messiah died check 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 all these little bible passages line up with that i think we're good now we all get to go to heaven great see you guys everyone convert the baptismal pool is to the left and let's all you know pay tithe to peter Whatever it might be. Yeah, see you Sunday. Right, exactly right. See you Wednesday as well. Yeah, I mean, so it's like, it's so easy to just, to just move on. But the apostles don't. I mean, Paul and Peter and John and then the gospel writers, I mean, they're over and over and over again talking about elements that haven't happened yet. And especially John, who he has an entire book about it, which is, like I said, it's pretty gutsy because until it's happened, you have to have faith. Uh, and it puts at risk the religion, so to speak, because people can point to it and say, well, that didn't happen yet. Um, in fact, Peter even references that. People are going to be going, hadn't happened yet. Probably never going to happen. Since the flood. <laughs> I know. Nothing's happened. Nothing's happened. I'm sure Isaiah was classified <laughs> as a false prophet well until after he died and oops. And it started coming through. So. It's All amazing. What a guy. What a genius. <laughs> I know. I know, right? Yeah, yeah, they threw Jeremiah in in, in a pit. Bloody pit. <laughs> Animal dung. Like, yeah. Now prophet. they're saying, what a genius. <laughs> right. And in fact, I mean, yeah. So that's... Uh, right, right. Um, and Yeshua, to his point, we already talked about um, his own prophecies. He prophesied the destruction of the temple multiple times, mm -hmm. well before it happens. Um, and... Uh, and indicated within a few years when it would happen. Yeah. Before so, this generation passes away. Right. So it's a... Uh, so anyway, like I said, the prophecies that are coming, um, we have faith that they'll be fulfilled just as the, old, the previous ones were. Uh, 
So we're gonna. I want to quickly look at one of those um, we read this week, uh, Zechariah chapter nine. We're gonna go back to the Tanakh for this one, because I really th- feel like this one captures the first and second coming of Yeshua um, in kind of a cool way. Um, so if someone could look up Zechariah nine verses nine and ten. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim and the war horse of Jerusalem, and the battle shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Did you get that dualism there? The beginning, first passage, he's coming, he's humble on a donkey. And in the end of the second verse, it's his dominion will be from sea to sea. So there is a, um, there's that dichotomy of Mashiach, that his humility, and ultimately we see his death and resurrection on our behalf, is balanced against this idea that he's going to come and he's going to rule. I thought it was interesting in that, in the, in the Isaiah 50, uh, 49 through 51 passage that we read as the Haftar for this upcoming Shabbat. Um, one of the things it talks about quite a bit is God is going to reign over the entire earth. And the people of Israel are going to be the beneficiaries of his dominion over all of the Gentiles. Um, and uh, first, Isaiah, or Isaiah 50, or sorry, yeah, 50, is it 50? No, 49, pardon me, 49, verse 22. Thus is the Lord God. Behold, I lift up, I will lift up my hand to the nations and set up my standard to the peoples. And they will bring your sons in their bosom and your daughters will be carried on their shoulders. Kings will be your guardians and their princes your nurses. They will bow down to you with their faces to the earth and the lick the dust of your feet. And you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. And, uh, and the point being here that... Um, you know, God's going to Yeshua's death atones for the, for the people of Israel, and then His coming as a king. He's going to affect this on their behalf. He's going to rule, and they're going to rule with Him. Um, interestingly enough, this verse here says, uh, "I will lift up my hand to the nations and set up my standard to the peoples." Um, Rashi points out the word here for standard is the word nisi. Same thing we get from uh, Hashem Nisi in the uh, in the um, the battle with Amalek, uh, and then speaking of which, in that one, one cool thing of the Messiah Ben Yosef, they they say that's an allusion to him because Joshua, who's of Ephraim, fights Amalek. Uh, Amalek traditionally from Esau. <clears throat> so nice, what's cool nice. about that is that Joshua's name and Yeshua's name are the same. Basically, mean the exact same thing. I think it's really funny. Anyway, I just thought that was fun. Um, the point that I'm trying to get at here, though, is that the, set up my standard to the peoples. The word there is, is nisi. It has to do with this, with the flag or a banner, or whatever. What's really neat is, do you know what else uses that word? It's a, it also is a term for a pole, as in a pole with a copper snake all the way around it. Oh, the exact same word. Is it really? And. Yeshua specifically references that yeah. in John chapter 3. Let's yeah, just take a look at that Moses, quick. Right. He goes, John so chapter 3. Moses raised up the serpent, so the son of man shall be raised up. Yeah. Right, but what's the, uh, 
What's the end result there? It's all meant to. Right. John chapter 3. I just want to, I want to read the verse. It, the banner. it says here in, uh, in John chapter 3, if I can find the passage here, it's in, uh, here it is. Um, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that believes in him will, believes will in him have eternal life. That wasn't quite what I was getting at. Where was that? Anyway. Um, and then it, there's another reference, too, that says uh, he will draw him into himself, which I can't recall where that one is right now. But yes, um, the point being that uh, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. So you, you see here this concept that like Yeshua's mission is bigger. Um, he even goes on to say, for God did not send the, the Son of the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Um, he doesn't stop at the people of Israel. So when you see in this passage in Isaiah, in Isaiah 49, this idea that the kings will be your will be your guardians and princesses, your nurses, um, it isn't just, I don't believe, just servitude. It isn't just that God's trying to make a point that the Gentiles are going to serve you because, you know, you earned it and they deserve it because they've been doing it great all this time and you've been suffering at their at, the, at their um, at their whim. Um, I think it's also the idea that these Gentiles are going to get brought in. Amen. Now, we're going to have to accept a place of humility in this, in this, in this relationship, but that's okay because we're part of the covenant and that's what really matters. And I think it's so cool that that, that language that I will set up a banner, I'll set up a standard, and we see to the peoples. That is so cool. John 8 says, When you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do not feel my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. But you were talking about John twelve thirty two, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. All of them are in John. We like John. Um, but yeah, so you get that imagery. Um, so you know, it's, I think it's just so cool to think about. Like, so you, you know, we're getting a glimpse, getting just a picture, small picture of God's plan for the nations here in Isaiah. Um, as we go deeper into. The, uh, the, the Haftar of, of Consolation, you're going to find that message gets repeated. That the, 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 the message of the Consolation of Israel is not enough. God has a big, big global picture in mind when he is restoring and redeeming Israel. Because that was always the plan, right? Last week's Haftar, our parasha, the nations will know what? They'll know that you guys are a wise and great people. Why? Because you'll keep the Torah, and they're going to go, well, I mean, look at what they're doing. Did, and do they, does anybody have a God as near to them as our God is to us? So the, the whole plan always, and you listen to, you know, Yishai Fleischer today uh, and other, and other um, Jewish teachers and whatnot, they recognize Israel is to be a light to the nations. And the Torah will go forth from Zion. Right. No question. So God's got a big picture, and he's going to use Mashiach to do it, and he already is. Amen. Final comments? When you were just making that comment, I was remembering the uh, interaction that Yeshua has with the woman in Matthew 15. Uh, when she's, well, she's asking for healing for oh. her daughter. And yeah. it's that amazing exchange where he says, I, I've only come to the lost yeah. sheep of the house of what Israel. What do I do with you? You know, and he's like, why should we throw the... the crumbs to the dogs and she responds uh, yes Lord yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master table and then Yeshua answered and said to her O woman great is your faith let it be to you as you desire 
I think that's such a neat little picture of that interaction. Like it's it makes me think sometimes of Romans eleven, where it, it does describe the grafting in, but that we're to be quite humble about being the yeah. grafted in branches <laughs> and remembering our place. This little dog, yeah, yeah. You know, and then and if you pair that with just the you know I, um, the other the things we learn from scripture about like you don't want to be the one that sits at the head of the table and needs to be moved. You know, you want to be the one that sits not not even at the table, and then you get called up, and so. As Gentiles, I think that's that's good reminders for us as mm-hmm. uh, as we study and learn. Don't assume, right? Eric, I agree. And if you want to, you know, help fulfill some of those prophecies now, bring the children of Israel back. You can do cool things like donate to Nefesh Benefesh and other types of organizations Absolutely. like that. You know, we didn't talk about Isaiah sixty-one. Maybe it's for a future lesson. Is that why? Because Yeshua himself read out of that in order to present his um, messianic his authority as a messianic he, we're talking about the dichotomy of him coming both as Mashiach ben Yosef and ben David and this is the perfect one because when Yeshua reads he starts up and he's reading in front of all these um, scribes and he's saying the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives and to release darkness from the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and stop right there not even after a sentence, stops in the middle of a sentence, and he looks up and says, this day, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Why did he stop right there? It's because everything up until that point was exactly what his mission was up until that point. Mm -hmm. But if you continue reading, this is his second Second purpose, his second coming. Um, And that is the day of the vengeance of a God to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion. Yada, 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 yada. Basically, to set up his authority. Um, so I, I just thought that was, I mean, a perfect example mm. that mm-hmm. he himself read out of. That's cool. And he only got stoned for it as a result because everyone knew exactly what he was saying when right. he said it. He basically blasphemed by calling himself mm-hmm. well, the Son of God. Brock made a comment earlier that I didn't notice. He said, if Yeshua was so meek and mild, the priesthood would not have been afraid of him. <laughs> Good point. Mm. Yeah. Right. And they were. No, he was he was a troublemaker. Good point. Um, when you call someone a brood of vipers, and in the libretto too, like I think it's cool that <laughs> we read through in our little section a lot of the psalms too, because David is quite humble in a lot of his psalms. He just has like a lot of very humbling words where he's described as suffering himself, you know. And it's like interesting how those psalms kind of parallel yeah. a little bit. How I mean, because they are kind of included along with a lot of the well, um, like, like father, like son. Yeah, well, right. <laughs> yeah. Brad, I, had, I hadn't really thought of that before, though, because some of David's psalms are almost exaggeratory with his level of, of you know, suffering that he's and describing. And devotion. And devotion. Right, yeah. But it's it's interesting when you think about them almost prophetically. Oh, right, absolutely. Specific well, and this one of the things that I think is really cool about um, uh, Charles Jenner, who wrote the, who put the pieces of scripture together, and then, and then um, and George Handel, who put it all to music, is that um, they wove them together so well to pull in some of these passages that you wouldn't even necessarily think about as being messianic. Um, it kind of gets you, um, oh yeah, I hadn't thought of that passage. And, the, and they do, especially when they talk about the suffering of Messiah, they do a great job of pulling in those prophetic elements from, uh, from Psalms and whatnot. If, uh, we, didn't, we did not read the libretto tonight, I wanted to quote some other passages, but if you haven't read the libretto, um, really highly recommend you doing that um, as much as you can in one sitting. It's not that long, it takes less than half an hour to read. Um, especially the, the, the this week reading the section on Messiah's suffering because it's it's just really 
blended together. And if you haven't heard it, it's beautiful. I was just thinking as we're reading through the Isaiah 53, they did such a great job of musically following the uh, the shift in the emotions. You know, there's the, I remember the beginning of that one passage, is like, all ye like sheep have gone astray. Almost playful, you know, like, you know, there we go, we're doing our own thing, whatever. And then it's like, all of a sudden, huge shift. And it's like, upon him came the iniquity of us all. I mean, it's like this, it's just unbelievable on a, on a dime shift from this kind of playful and happy, almost like, you know, you know, oh, well, said again. oops, oops, to realizing like, whoa, no, that he died for that. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, so it's just, it's just a really a beautiful, um, it's a very worshipful experience, um, and a good opportunity to, uh, to think about, think about Messiah and what he did for us. Um, and then of course, towards the end of the, of, of the uh, Handel's Messiah, think about what he's going to do when he's coming. Um, so yes. Anything else? Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Dad, if you would close us in prayer. Father, we thank you that you uh, are good and gracious God, and that you, knowing who we are and knowing that we are weak, that you have uh, prepared a way for us to enjoy you. Father, we thank you for the work of Messiah. We thank you for uh, the prophecies uh, that we can see and point to uh, Yeshua. Father, we thank you also for the prophecies where we can see that uh, his work is not done yet. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Joshua. Thank you, guys. Excellent. That was fun. Thank you very much, Joshua. What did I send you, Bernard? I can't I, I, I smell curry. It's at... Uh... It's not curry.